0: Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, JRforesteros.com. Enjoy the class!
1: Yay!
0: Curious, how many of you, if given the chance, would go to space? Oh, good. About How How many of you? There's no way. Under no circumstances. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Also, I'm curious, we'll come back to this very end, but how many of you have seen Gravity, the film that's... Just been out? That's up for Best Picture? Only a few of you. Okay. Interesting. Um, that was like my dream come true, that movie, because I've, I've been in love with space since I was a very little kid, so uh, getting to, if you see it, <laughs> if you see it big enough, it sort of feels like you're there, except you're not weightless, so, um, okay, so good, let's, let's talk a little bit about what we did last week and the homework that you had. Um, so we, we talked last week specifically about the symbol of the sea that we find in the Bible. <laughs> Um, and we, t- we talked about how the sea represented For uh, lots of ancient peoples Lots of ancient cultures like the Canaanites Like the Babylonians, even like the Egyptians The sea represented uh, basically hostility towards life you know, it, was, it, was, it was death, it was fear It was something that was terrifying And it was often embodied you know, as some kind of a giant sea monster Or even like a god or a goddess So you know, in Greek mythology it's Poseidon Right, we talked about Tiamat last week, and and Yam, and, and Babylonian and Canaanite mythology, and in all of these stories that we have that were surrounding the people of Israel, uh, they, the world came about through battle, right through combat. The the champion god of whatever culture you were a part of, again the Canaanite, or the Babylonians, or the Egyptians, or whatever, actually did battle against the sea, and defeated the sea, and that was how that was how the world was created. And so all of these cultures were founded on this story that reality that life itself was a byproduct of combat and that that even continued existence relied on power and on combat from, uh, you know, among the gods. And so uh, we looked and we, we compared that to the biblical story, which says that, no, in fact, there's just one God, and this God called the universe into being, uh, didn't, didn't combat it into being, he called it into being, right? It was divine invitation, let there be light, let there be Earth, let there be life, and and there was. And so we, we talked a little bit last week at the end about how different the biblical story was. That instead of combat, there was this divine invitation to live. So what we're going to do this week? Uh, well, actually, sorry, I need to go through. So what I want to do. Uh, those of you who did your homework, and some of you weren't here last week and may not have gotten a chance to get the handouts, but I give you four passages in the Old Testament where the C is mentioned in a pretty major way, it's talked about in some of the ways that we were looking at. So we're not going to spend time to read through all of them, I'm going to assume that you did that on your own, but I'm curious, what stuck out to you as you worked through that homework? Was there any, anything that was particularly interesting or surprising to you? Uh, anything that you kind of had an aha moment about or anything that was confusing? Um. Psalm 29, where it said he destroys the forest. Uh-huh. I didn't really get that. Okay, so this is in Psalm 29. This is the only place I'm going to probably do this, but this was in uh, verse 5. It says, the voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, Nine. Oh, and in nine? Oh, the voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips the forest bare. Okay, so... Anyone have any idea what that might be referencing? What kind? Yeah, tornadoes, hurricanes. In fact, the voice of the Lord is a way that a lot of ancient peoples referred to a particular natural phenomenon. Anyone want to guess what it is? Wind? No. Lightning? Well, very very close to lightning. Thunder, right? Thunder. And so when it says the voice of the Lord splits the cedars, that's what we're looking at is this, you know, lightning strikes and thunder and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and then li- a little bit later, you have even the sense of, again, in the ancient world, there was no, I mean, they didn't have any concept of high pressure and low pressure systems and, you know, things moving around and all like I- if there was a storm, it was from God. Or if you, again, if you were in a not in a polytheistic culture, it was from a particular God. And it might even be some other God attacking your, I mean, there's, you know, you can imagine all the different explanations they might have for these things. So um, acts. acts of God. Yeah, insurance acts of God. Yeah, in our insurance policies, that's right. Acts <laughs> of God. So, does that, does that help? Okay. Anything else that struck that's stuck you? Still
1: a mindset today, though. Sure. In some ways, because I know growing up, we used to as kids kind of sit out in a lightning of thunderstorm, we'd be on the porch and we'd be talking. We're like, "What do you think God's trying to say today?" Mm-hmm. Think he's? I mean, it was just a conversation. It was just what we talked about, and I don't know where the idea came from. I mean, we always went to church, but I don't know why it was in my head that. One of the
0: ways God speaks, Mm -hmm. but it was, you know. Good. Yeah, and that is still, you know, it's interesting, your point that it is still sort of in our culture to a degree, but there's a. I think most of us at least practice differently, understanding that God's not like up in heaven pushing the the lightning button, you know, like throwing (laughs) bolts down, or, you know, you're in that picture that people have of Zeus, right, holding the lightning bolts and throwing them. I mean, that's an ancient person very literally held to those kinds of ideas, whereas more today we would maybe say, okay, so we can look at this natural phenomenon, but it's a natural phenomenon, and we're going to ask, is God speaking through this naturally occurring thing? Not, again, is God up in heaven actually, you know... Pulling the levers that cause storms, or whatever. Um,
1: I think Job was a good representation for the upcoming creation evolution.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I thought that would be that's good. Yeah, the discussion of the Leviathan oh, yeah. there in Job. Yeah, you know, for a
1: creationist, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations? Who marked off his dimensions? Who measured them? You know, who laid the cornerstones, the footings? God is telling us He is Creator God. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Good. And what's interesting to note in the Job passage, for those of you who read it, is there's still this idea of a three-tiered universe represented in Job, right? With the foundations of the earth and the gates of the sea and all that. Um, but in that particular context, God is still affirming, I am the creator. So today we would maybe say, and we we do we even have songs that we sing about this, right? Like God is the creator of the galaxies and of the universe, and you know all of these words that an ancient person would have never used because they didn't know anything about galaxies and planets and, and these kinds of things. But we we today would still say, yeah, God created those things. So yeah, very good. Anything else, Jane? Do you want to share the one you talked about with the Red Sea? I thought that was you know okay. Um, but then you open
1: Exodus 15. It says, um, I thought it odd again. You know. They they sit here in Exodus fifteen and they have thousands of adjectives for Christ. Majestic, powerful, this, this, and this. He's gonna take care of us. He's gonna make our enemies stop when we walk by. They're gonna, you know, look at us and da da da. And then they turn right around and complain when God sends the manna yeah, and complain and not look to him. You know, and they're they're forty years later they're still wondering because they can't
0: control mm-hmm. you know who are they loyal to. Right. Right? I just, that was just, you know, just kind of. Good. Good. Anyone else? Any other thoughts, insights? Jonah's story even touched on that too, when they were on the boat and whose God was upset. They were praying to everybody else's God. Anyone they could think of. Right? Just try it. So they weren't even loyal to their own gods. Yeah. Yeah, when you're about to die, right, (laughs) you don't really care who. Obviously, praying to your God's not working, so you'll try someone else's. You know, maybe you'll find the right one. Right and uh, yeah, I mean, they were that's that's and that's exactly the kind of emotional weight that that text is meant to carry. Right, you're supposed to and you're you're supposed to think it's a little bit silly in Jonah that everyone in the story repents except for Jonah. You know, these all these pagan sailors that are praying to every bajillion different god they can think of when they find out who's causing this, immediately without any hesitation, they repent and pray. The Ninevites, as soon as they hear. The, um, uh, the judgment, the Ninevites, which again, they're like the biggest, baddest guys in the world at that time. They're like, a, you know, the way we would think about like Al-Qaeda or something like that here, right? As soon, as soon as they hear a four-word sermon, you know, you have 40 days until you're destroyed. That's the whole message. They repent. Jonah still doesn't. You know, even God, once the Ninevites repent, decides not to destroy them because they repented. And even even after God Changes the plan. Jonah still won't change.
1: Wasn't he afraid?
0: Uh, no, actually, in, in chapter 4, it says he was angry. But I,
1: don't, I, know, I know he was, but how can you not be afraid? We're talking God here who can do whatever, and you're going to go against
0: him. That, well, and that angel, that's, and that's, uh, that's exactly the emotional, that's what yeah. you're supposed to feel. You're supposed to be like, really, dude? <laughs> really? Like, your hatred for these people is so strong. That you would disobey God after he throws a storm at you, saves you with a fish. I mean, go through all the things that God does to Jonah in that story. And even at the end, he still like won't give up his hatred of Nineveh. But then I can
1: look at myself. I know that story. I know it's the truth. But I still do the
0: same yep. thing. And that's exactly, what, that's exactly how you're meant to read it. But yeah, I can
1: see it so easily.
0: And you see how foolish it is, it is when it's in someone it's else. Yeah, when it's me, it yeah. makes total sense, you know. But <laughs> any other people, it's yeah. clearly foolish, right? Yeah, that's exa- good. Yep. good. That God shows His power through the sea yep. because the sea obeys their command. He didn't mm-hmm. just show it to the believers; he showed it to yep. the believers. To everyone. He showed it to everybody. Mm-hmm. He's. But, I mean, the Bible's very clear. He's not willing that any should perish, right. but that all should come to. The even land. pagan sailors and, and infants. So good. All right. So good about last week, feeling, feeling stable? Okay, so what we're going to do this week, uh, this, this is the stuff that I was the most excited about to do in this class, which is we're going to be looking at our culture today. We're going to spend most of our time tonight looking at texts and movies and TV shows and stuff like that, songs that are being put out today, and what we're going to do is basically the same thing we did when we looked at the Babylonian and the Canaanite myths. We're going to ask, what story are they telling? What message are they communicating? Um, and spoiler alert, it's not going to be one that biblically we agree with, right? Just like in, in the Bible itself, it disagreed with the story of combat creation, right, that, that was being told. And so we're going to look and we're going to practice identifying this story in these different places today. Uh, I'm going to give you an overview of it first. That's what the timeline's for. Um, but then we're going to go into looking at what, uh, how that shows up. Um, because by the time we get to the end of the timeline, you're going to think it's like a really dry, boring academic discussion. And you're going to kind of be rolling your eyes being like, who cares about any of this? And then we'll look. Then we'll see, well, here it is in a movie. Here it is in a TV show. Here it is in some songs. And then what we'll see is that people in our culture are hearing this story over and over and over and over, probably like a few dozen times a day or more, depending on how much TV and songs they listen to and stuff like that. And then no one, no one even knows it. Because no one's paying attention, you know, most of us don't pay attention to the media that we're consuming and to the message that's in the media that we're consuming. So we're going to practice identifying that tonight, and then at the end we're going to come back and say, okay, so if this is the story that is being told in our culture, uh, what does the Bible have to say about that story? And how can we, as Christians, have a healthy, constructive dialogue with that point of view? Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what we're going to do. So let's dive in. All right. We're going to go on a whirlwind tour of Western history, grossly oversimplified, which is the best way to do it, very quickly. Uh, And you can guess what all my pictures are. Uh, So let's start back in the 1500s-ish. This is a big, big, big shift in Western culture that we now today call the Enlightenment, which is obviously uh, a clue that we think it was a really good thing. Right, Um, so the Enlightenment was a a turn in every sphere of culture, in government, in arts and entertainment, all those things we looked at last week, and it was a focus on the human person and on our ability as people to discover things, to figure things out, to to advance the world, all kinds of stuff. Uh, One of the biggest gifts of the Enlightenment was the scientific method, which I'm sure all of us probably had to learn in school, right? Which is where you have a question, so you formulate a hypothesis which is a possible answer to that question, right? Then you design an experiment to test that hypothesis. Then once you've tested that hypothesis, it proves it either true or false, and your experiment should be repeatable so that you can test it a few times, develop some theories and laws out of that, right? I mean, everyone's familiar with this, right? What the scientific method enabled us to do was (laughs) begin to understand the natural world. Uh, there was a time when people thought that you know, like every illness was caused by four—I think what they called them—humors in the body or fluids in your body, and you know that was why they bled you with leeches and things like that because it was like to relieve some of the different fluids. Now we understand things about like bacteria and viruses and all kinds of scientifically understandable things. And again, because we can observe them, test them, and repeat those observations and tests, we've developed all kinds of stuff from you know antibodies and vaccines into cell phones and satellites and all kinds of like every, you know, everything that we have basically so the scientific revolution was a very very good thing and it, it has been like sort of a foundation that Western civiliz- civilization has been built on ever since as we got as, as that kind of took hold though and as it was as it was beginning to shape culture uh, we had a lot of philosophers who were starting to wonder about the nature of reality and there was one particularly famous philosopher named Rene Descartes. He's a French guy. You've probably heard of him before. Uh, and Descartes wondered how we can know things are true, right? Because we have this whole we have this whole uh, we have this whole system of proving things, right? Now we have a way to prove stuff, and the problem is like you can't prove God, right? You can't put God in a test tube and run tests on him and see if it's repeatable and observable. Um, God doesn't submit to our scientific inquiry like that. And so Descartes was like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know if there is a God or not. Like, I think there is. Descartes was a Christian, right? So he thought, he, he felt, thought there was. But he was like, but I, I can doubt that, and I'm just not sure. So then he wondered, well, what can I be sure about? And he said, well, I, I actually can't be sure of the things that I sense, because how many people have ever had their eyes play tricks on them, right? I mean, we all have had that experience where you thought something was there, and, oh, it turns out it wasn't. Or you thought someone said your name, and no one did. And So he's like, well, I can't really trust my five senses, because they've proven to me to be shaky, so, so I can't trust my, my sensory input and I, and I can't trust the things I just believe without being able to prove them. So what can I trust? And the only thing that Descartes could not doubt was the fact that he was doubting. And so that, that became the foundation of his philosophy and he coined a very famous Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And what Descartes meant by that was the, the only thing that I know for certain is that I can think. And so therefore, thinking is what makes me a, a being. Thinking is the most fundamental thing about me. And if you read all of Descartes' philosophy, he goes back and then proves God from the fact that he can think. And he has all kinds of other stuff. You know, so sort of after he tears everything down, he builds it all back up. But it's all built on his own human ability to think. And so human reason, which pairs very nicely with the scientific method, right? That's all based on our ability to logically assume things and, and understand them became the foundation of what became called modernity or modern culture. It was all based on our ability to think, all based on our ability to reason and logic. Okay? Now, you fast forward a few hundred years. By the time you get to the 1800s, we've had the Industrial Revolution. You know, we've had incredible breakthroughs in science and medicine, all kinds of new technologies. You know, The telegraph is this newfangled thing that lets people on completely opposite sides of the country communicate nearly instantaneously, you guys. Phenomenal. The world's getting incredibly small. We've expanded all over the globe. There's no, there, there are no uncharted seas anymore. You know, there are no places where we have to write on the map, here there be monsters, because we just didn't know what was there, right? Uh, and so, so by the 1800s, the people who are looking forward are predicting a new golden age of humanity. They're saying we are on the cusp of eradicating disease. We are on the cusp of curing death we're on the cusp of never having to work again because our technology is progressing at such lightning-fast pace that, that, that basically within the 20th century you know, is going to be the first golden age of humanity. Yeah, everyone's already laughing because you know what happened next, right? So I want to talk about what happened in 1912 because this was the first, there were already some cracks beginning to form back in the 1800s. There were some philosophers going, eh, I don't know about all of this. But most, most regular people like us, they were, not, they were, they were like, yeah, 20th century is going to be the best. And then in 1912, someone in England built a ship, a big boat. And it was, so, it w- it was the pinnacle of human achievement. It was the pinnacle of technological advancement. The pinnacle it was the best thing human reason could produce. And the builder was so confident of this that he boasted famously, even God himself could not sink this ship. So it set out from Liverpool, England, bound for New York on its inaugural voyage. And four days after it left port, it struck an iceberg in the middle of the night in April. And it sank in less than three hours. And that rocked the world. Because all of a sudden, maybe we weren't as smart as we thought we were. I mean, we were real confident that this boat was unsinkable, that we could set out on that sea, which had been for so many eons, the bane of human existence, right? And we had finally conquered it. Even the gods could not sink this ship. And then actually it sank really fast and killed a bunch of people. So that was the first, that was the first major warning sign for, for most of the culture, that things weren't as good as we thought they were. And then, of course, just a few years later the world was engulfed in a war unlike any that anyone had ever seen. And the technological advancements that had brought us to the cusp of a new golden age actually made this war much, much, much deadlier than any war that anyone had ever fought. We had airplanes that could drop bombs now. We had gas that could kill hundreds of people in one, you know, in one setting. We had new guns that could fire incredibly rapidly. And so all of a sudden, the 20th century isn't starting out so well. So we come out of the first world war and you know, for the ones that won, it was pretty good, right? The economy was growing and things like that until October uh, October 1929, the stock market crashed, big, bad. And all of a sudden the entire world was in a crippling global depression. And then by the time we were about to get out of that, World War II happened directly basically because of the fallout from World War I. Again, engulfing the world in a massive war that was worse than the First Great War. And in that one, we saw that not only were we you know, really, really good at killing each other's soldiers, but an entire nation of people had set out to systematically eradicate other groups of people. Now we're halfway through the century at this point, and so far this has been the most devastating century to human life that has ever been. And it only, I mean, you you guys know, right? It only gets worse. By the time, particularly in this country, we get to the 60s, we're getting the civil rights movement, we're getting the sexual revolution that's calling into question all kinds of things about right and wrong and morality and who who really knows what counts as good and bad and and, and all kinds of cultural institutions like, like marriage is a big one. We're being called into question, right? Um, we also got into Vietnam at that point, which is massively detrimental to the public trust in our institutions, particularly the government. You had the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which rocked our collective national conscience, right? It made us feel incredibly uh, exposed and, dangerous, uh, and endangered, right? Then by the time you get to the 70s, with the 70s all the way through the 90s, you have you know Nixon's impeachment. You have all kinds of church scandals where you have very high-profile church leaders getting caught in all sorts of pretty disgusting sexual scandals and things like that. You have the Clinton scandal in the 90s. You have just thing after thing after thing after thing that's undermining the idea that we are any better off than we ever were. And then, of course, by the time you get to the beginning of the 21st century, it starts out with 9-11. And that gets us about to where we are here. And so, sorry to bring you all down, (laughs) right? But I want you to see that, that track of... We were so sure from the Enlightenment forward that modernity was going to save us, that essentially we were going to save ourselves, that human reason was capable of delivering us. And, you know, God was in there too. Most of these people were Christian, you know, particularly in Europe and America, so they, they had their ways of talking about God, but at the at the bottom of it all was really human reason. Us. Our ability to be good enough, smart enough, enough enough. To save ourselves. And instead, it just kept getting worse. So, there are four major uh, philosophical movements that sort of emerged basically starting in the 1800s and moving forward that really profoundly shape the story that our culture is telling itself today. And I want to just briefly go through them with you. You may or may not have heard of any of these people or anything, but the first one is existentialism. And this one is a little bit complicated, but it's also kind of the least important of the three. So if if it's not totally clear, don't don't get get too caught up in it. But the phrase that they use is existence precedes essence. Okay, Existence precedes essence. And what they mean by that is that meaning, what, what makes us human, is derived from the fact of our existence, not from what people tell us. In other words... Um, you and the fact that you exist is what gives your life meaning, not who someone else says that you are, whether that someone else is your parents or a spouse or the government or God. It's not someone else that defines your existence for you. It's you define your existence for yourself. And you can see how that logically follows from Descartes, right? I think, therefore I am. Well, if it's your ability to think and reason that makes you human, it's not very far from there to saying, well, then if it's, if it's my own cognitive abilities that make me human, then it must be me that gives my existence meaning and weight and importance. Okay? They only get more depressing from here, so don't worry. <laughs> the next one's called nihilism. <laughs> it sounds good, right? <laughs> uh, nihilism claims it's a philosophical position that claims that life has no meaning or purpose nihilists believe that humanity is an accident of evolution and that the universe is so vast so enormous that humankind is at best an afterthought that nothing that we do will actually make any difference in the grand scheme of things that we could do our worst and in a hundred years or so it doesn't matter That's nihilism. Absurdism, then. (laughs) Sorry, this is such a downer. I should have put some jokes in here. Uh, Absurdism claims that human effort to find meaning will always fail. and, And therefore, because our desire or our attempts to find meaning are doomed to fail that makes them absurd that because they're guaranteed to fail it's stupid to try it's silly to try it's laughable to try and they say that that's the case because we can never be certain about anything okay they take even they take even away what Descartes stood on and said no even that's untrustworthy unreliable and there's no meaning there's no purpose even if there is even if there is some kind of meaning or purpose we are not bright enough we're not intelligent enough to figure it out so so it's essentially as though there's nothing you know so we're all wasting our time and then the last one is pessimism and you can see how these are kind of building on you the pessimism kind of brings them all together so um pe- there's there's four tenets of pessimism uh that that are important for us first of all the first one is that they say time is a burden time is a burden and what they mean by that is, okay, think about animals, right? Animals just live in the present. They don't think overly much about what happened yesterday, and they don't dream about the future. They just they take whatever is happening right now, right? Um, humans, on the other hand, we are haunted by our past, and we dread our future. And it's it's our ability to comprehend our fate. It's our ability to understand what's at the end of our existence, which is death, that makes our current existence so Bad. So so they say time is a burden. This fact that that we, we are conscious of what death is, we can understand it, and we know that it's in front of us. You know, that it's inevitable and escapable. That 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 makes that makes existence painful. The second thing is that they say human history is ironic. What they mean by that is that everyone thinks that things are getting better, but they're not. Okay? And in fact, so one of the most famous uh pessimist is a guy named Rousseau. Uh, he was someone that Jefferson really liked a lot. Um, some of his stuff made it into our, some of our founding documents, if you remember your American history from high school. But Rousseau actually said he preferred, he, he, he thought that primitive humanity, like the, you know, the caveman model, was the preferred state of humanity, that everything we've done since then has just made things worse. So he actually has a quote where he says, our souls have become corrupted to the extent that our sciences and our arts have advanced towards perfection. So he says the more advanced we get, the, the worse we are. The more corrupt our souls are. Right? So, so again, that's a, that's, a, that's a tenet of pessimism. We might think things are getting better, they're actually getting worse. Okay? The third thing is that human existence is absurd, obviously drawing from absurdism, right? That our desire for meaning is doomed to fail. That any, any, any idea that we might have that we could derive meaning is, just, is foolish. And the last thing is that freedom and happiness are incompatible. Okay? So so again, we think, we like to think, that rational thought, which is freedom of the mind, right? The ability to, to kind of explore things and think about them and all of that, will lead to freedom and flourishing, right? Things will keep getting keep better. We'll use our ability to reason to improve ourselves. So, you know, this freedom will ultimately lead to more happiness. But in fact, things are just getting worse and worse and worse. And they would point to the 20th century as evidence of that. Okay? So freedom and happiness are incompatible. You can see why this philosophy is called pessimism, right? Now, this is the point where I said your eyes might be starting to roll back in your head and you start be, might, might be starting to wonder where does any of this actually matter, okay? And here's the thing, right? There are very few cultural icons or artists or filmmakers or people like that that would like, you know, they sit there and write a script or write a novel or make a TV show with a philosophy textbook sitting open next to them. Right. That's just I mean, that's not how some some of them do. Right. But but most most people don't live that way. We absorb what we believe more organically than that. Right. It's through conversations with people. It's through the communities that we're a part of. It's through. And a lot of us, it's through the things that we watch, listen to consume. Right. And so these ideas and these philosophies start showing up in all kinds of different really interesting ways. And if you're paying attention and if you know that they're out there, you can see them in pop songs, in movies, in books, and all that kind of stuff. So I want to show you a couple, and then I'm, then I'm going to give you some to experiment on. So, uh, now we talked about how in the ancient world, the sea was this actively hostile force, right? Embodied as a sea monster or some kind of like evil god or goddess. And obviously... As we moved into the modern world and we charted the seas and all of that, that picture changed. And we didn't think that there were sea monsters anymore. They were like whales or giant squids or sharks or something like that. Um, And of course, obviously, as we move forward and as Western culture, which is predominantly Christian, which was monotheistic, took over, people thought it was silly to believe in multiple gods and things like that, right? And so we, we we quit viewing the sea as this sort of actively hostile force. This thing that was out to get humanity. We didn't didn't think that. It's obviously dangerous, but it's a natural phenomenon. Right? It's not something that, like, when you get in a boat, the sea's not like, oh, yeah, just come on out deep enough and I'm going to get you. (laughs) Like, we don't think that anymore. But ancient people, I mean, there was was an element of that. Right? They wouldn't put it so silly as I did, but that, that was a way that they felt, a way that they thought. So... As scientific knowledge as, and philosophy progressed, there was a new story of the sea, and ultimately really what we now call nature that began to emerge. Not that it's actively hostile, not that it's actively trying to destroy you, but something else, and that's what we're going to look at. So let's start with Moby Dick, everyone's favorite giant, really confusing novel about a whale. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to read to you a couple of quotes from Moby Dick, and we'll start to see, again, how he's talking about the sea and about nature. So he even asks here in the book, why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity, an own brother of Jove, which is Jupiter or Zeus? Surely this is all not without meaning, right? He's saying, okay, so there's something to this idea that the sea is dangerous. There's something, something to this, you know, it's obviously not a god, but there's something to this idea that the sea is is dangerous, and so uh, down on that, that second big quote there, he says, uh, he's talking about nature and about the sea and all of that, and about, of course, this great white whale that they're all hunting. And he says, Is it that by its indefiniteness it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensities of the universe, and thus stabs us from behind with the thought of annihilation when we behold the the white depths of the Milky Way? Right, he's saying as we look into space and we that kind of creeps up from behind is this existential despair that there's nothing there, that it's all just emptiness. And when we consider the other theory of the natural philosophers, that all other earthly hues, every stately or lovely emblazoning, the sweet tinges of sunset skies and woods, yes, the gilded velvets of butterflies and the butterfly cheeks of young girls, all these are but subtle deceits. All the beauty of nature is a subtle deceit. It's a it's a cleverly veiled lie, not actually inherent in substances, but only laid on from without, so that all deified nature absolutely paints like the harlot, whose allurements cover nothing but the charnel house within. Of all of these things the albino whale was the symbol. Wonder ye then at the fiery hunt. So he's saying Some of us when we begin to consider nature we get the sense that that below it below the beauty of it there's actually nothing and he compares it to a prostitute he says yes she looks you know she looks all good and painted up but beneath that there's nothing real it's all artificial it's all manufactured and he's saying that's what nature is that nature is this illusion that there's any sort of deeper meaning or beauty or purpose And then he says, if you can understand that, if you can connect emotionally with that idea, then you might be able to understand why Ahab was so obsessed with this whale that represented all of that for him. Right? That he was trying to find some kind of meaning, some kind of purpose in hunting this great white beastie. Okay? And that's like, that's two paragraphs out of a multi-bajillion page book. But if any of you have read Moby Dick, you know that that's like, that's what they keep coming back to is that Ahab has this irrational obsession with this whale, right? And 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 Ichabod or Ishmael, <laughs> sorry, got my no- novels mixed up. Ishmael is saying that what this represented for him was this fear that there is nothing else, and he thought that if somehow he could tame this untamable beast, if he could vanquish this unkillable foe, then maybe he could wrest some meaning out of his life. And of course, well, maybe you don't know how Moby Dick ends, but not well. So that's a really interesting statement where, in the, in the novel Moby Dick, the, the object of their hunt is painted as this, this quest for meaning, and it does not end with them finding meaning. It ends with death and destruction. Yeah?
1: I, I'm sorry. I'm making all kinds of faces. Not because I don't agree with you, but I'm thinking completely different. Yes? Oh, I, go ahead. Okay. Yes, I understand what you're yeah. saying. But couldn't he be looking for God?
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: This great God. But really, it's the ocean,
0: the power of the Mm
1: sea, the violence, the calm, Mm the still, the
0: storm, that rocks him. And ultimately, I mean, yes. And, And yet, we're looking for God.
1: We want this tangible item to be. And yet, it is surrounded by us and so powerful, we can't even fathom the depths mhm
0: yeah what's interesting about what's interesting about reading moby dick that way then is that ultimately still it ends with death and destruction and so there's this uh if there is a god it's not a personal personable god it's not a uh it's not a god you would want to pray to it's not a god that you would want to embrace you know it's this cruel cold heartless right. um the anger, like yeah you said, yeah so angry yeah. Was exactly. Yeah.
1: He he was told Mhm. and just proving to himself that his own soul means nothing. Yeah. Proving to himself.
0: Yeah. Hence the despair, hence the anguish hence. So Nietzsche, who we're going to get to in a little bit, Nietzsche calls that exact moment when you're convinced that there is no one who loves you, that there is no light at the end of the tunnel or whatever, that ultimately all you have is death to look forward to. He calls that the void. And and so you've probably heard the saying before, be careful how long you look into the abyss because the abyss looks back into you. That's from Nietzsche. And he's talking about this idea of coming to the end of meaning and wondering whether or not there's anything else out there. And so, yeah, you see that. And again, what's interesting is, you know, *Moby Dick came out in 1850, right? So it's still really... Early in this whole process, and so that's I think that's why you know we're kind of kicking around. Well, there's lots of there's obviously so much religious language and all of this stuff going on. Uh, I think Moby Dick would be a very different book if it had been written today, because there's so, there would be so much less God talk, you know. It, really, you know, because I mean that's well, well we'll get there. So yeah, that's a that's a great great read of that text. Great comment. Any other thoughts about Moby Dick? Let's go to a movie called The Gray, then. We're going to see basically the same theme, right? This idea of, of nature as hostile, but ultimately indifferent. So in, how many of you have seen The Gray with Liam Neeson? Me and Steve? Okay, a couple? Oh, a few of us. Okay, all right. Like four of us. Good. So you guys? Everyone else? I was going to play a clip from it, but it has a lot of F-bombs in it, so I decided to just tell you about it instead. <laughs> um, so Liam Neeson uh, of Taken Fame plays Otway. That's his character's name. That's all we don't know. Is probably his last name. We don't know his first name. His name is just Otway, and he's a man who flees to the most barren, hostile place on Earth, which is the Arctic Circle. Okay, it's the, it's the, it's the most terrible, uh, lifeless place. I mean that that there that there is right on on our on our planet. And his uh, he flees there. Uh, we find out through the course of the film that he flees there after the death of his wife. Okay, it's, it's his wife has died. It's, you know, it's his girlfriend or it's someone that he really loves. that's a woman. So um, she she has died, and in his grief, he has fled to the Arctic. And his job there is to kill wolves to protect the the workers at this oil pipeline. Okay, that's a, so his, and he just goes out every day with a rifle and sits in the snow and watches for wolves and kills them. Uh and so. They're all about, they all get on a plane and they're headed back to civilization, and the plane crashes. And so he and five other survivors basically decide they have to set out for civilization. And early in the film, early after they've set out, they figure out that they're being pursued by this particular breed of wolf that's very large and very scary. Uh, and and Otway tells them that the problem is that they're too close to the wolves' den. Like they have this range, you know, about a about a hundred mile range from their den that they'll hunt. And if they can just get outside of that circle, then they'll be okay. The wolves won't hunt them anymore. But you can probably imagine what happens, right? One by one, people are getting picked off. And it's in the middle of all of this, you know, as they're as they're all going. Otway has a moment of reflection. He's talking to one of the other guys, and he says, "My dad, when he was a kid, he had this this painting." that was uh, framed and hanging up on his wall. and uh, Or it was a poem, sorry, not a painting. He's like, and I never really understood it. I still am not really sure that I understand it. And so he quotes the poem, which I put there in your notes for you. And it's a very short four lines. It says, once more into the fray, into the last good fight I've ever known. Live and die on this day. Live and die on this day. And he said, I never never understood this poem, but but, but here it is. And so then, of course, as the film goes on, one man after another dies and the wolves are getting them and they're dying from exposure and from falling on, you know, just this, they're in this incredibly hostile environment. So they, just, they keep dying. And finally, Otway is the only one who's left. And there's actually this, this really just terrible, terrible scene where he and the last guy are, they are, are running from the wolves and the, he, the guy falls into the water, okay, which again, they're in the Arctic, so it's super cold, and he gets trapped under the water. And he—he's literally—I mean, there's a scene where the camera's showing, and his his mouth is this far from the surface of the water, but he's caught, and he can't, like, he can't break the surface, and so he, you know, he dies this far from life. And it's just—I mean, it's—it's—and it very much you feel it as the viewer, but so does Otway that this is the last straw, like he he. You know, they keep they keep hoping, and in fact, one point, one of the characters even says, you know, don't give up. Just around the river bend, there could be a cabin, or we might see a helicopter, or, you know, something, some, something, something good is going to happen any moment now, and all of us who've grown up in a culture where there are always happy endings to stories, we know that's how it works, right? Yeah, it looks really bad, and a few of the minor characters that you didn't really know very well died off already, but the main guys are gonna make it. And sure enough, they'll just, they'll get her, you know, you thought they were going to quit, but then they decided not to, and they get around the corner, and there is a cabin with smoke coming out of the chimney, you know, and barbecue on a fire out front or something, you know, that's, that's, that's how our stories work, right? I mean, we know that. And so, instead, this guy dies, and Otway has had it. And so he actually, and this, guys, I'm telling you, when I was watching this movie, it totally floored me, because rarely in a movie do you see prayer happen, okay? And so, you know, it's not like I watch every movie expecting that. But in this film, at this moment, when he is completely at the end of his rope, he looks right up at the sky and talks directly to God. Now, it's not nice. I mentioned the F-bombs already, right? Um, but it's it's a very fascinating prayer. And I put it in here, and I edited it out. Um, if If you're offended by that, by the dashes, the F can stand for frog. I'm not going to read it out loud for you. But it's interesting that he is so angry and what he's specifically asking for is rescue. He's, ba- he's actually at first demanding God, and I, I, again, I didn't play the clip because it's lots of F words and stuff, but he's, he goes from demanding to pleading. By the time he gets halfway through the prayer, he says, just show me, you know, show me and I'll believe in you till the day I die. I, I will. I'll, I'll do whatever you say. He's making all these promises, and then he sits there and waits for an answer. And again, I'm watching, and I'm like, okay, so now a helicopter, right? Or something, something. Oh, like, this is the part in the movie where that happens, and nothing happens. And so he says, fine, I'll do it myself. And he gets up, and he walks, and he's walking, and then um, all of a sudden he realizes that he's walked into the very middle of the wolf's den. And he looks around, and there's carcasses, you know, of animals and bones and stuff all around him. And all of a sudden, there are wolves that have come up over the ridge all around him. And he realizes that he's in the middle of the wolf's den. Instead of instead of getting to freedom, he's come right into the middle. And so he uh, he he puts he you know he takes out his wallet, he looks at the picture of his wife, you know, one last time, and he throws it on the ground. And then. This is like the scene that everyone in the movie's all been waiting for, because the alpha wolf is coming down, and it's like the main one that's been tracking him the whole time. And so, like, he gets his knife in his hand, and he, you know, gets these little like bottles of medicine in, his hand and breaks them off, so he's like ready to fight. And then this, it gets real close on his eyes, and he remembers as he's looking at the alpha, wolf, you know, like eye to eye, and he's, he's he remembers this poem. It cuts back for some reason to this poem from his dad. And they, they read it again, and it's, it's the weirdest place to cut in a movie, right? Because, like, like, we're about to get the fight that we've been waiting the whole movie for. And so then it cuts back, and it shows him, you know, getting all ready and bracing himself, and then it closes up on his eyes, and you hear the wolf growl, and then the movie's over. Yeah. And then you don't even see them fight. You assume that they did, right? And I'm telling you, when, when anyone who's seen it, you can probably, you were like, oh, What? And I tell you, when I was in the movie theater, people were mad. they were like, "Whoa!" Like, you know, they felt like they got cheated out of the thing that they'd been waiting for. So now you have a sense of the film. The thing that is interesting to ask then for us is to say, why did it end that way? Yeah, yeah, I and mean, that's exactly it, right? So, so what the film, what the film is doing is it's using the Arctic. The same way we've been talking about the sea, right? It's this place that's hostile towards life that humanity cannot live. I mean, if you're you know if you're out in well, we're all experiencing that right now with this polar vortex we got going on, right? Like if you're outside too long, you're real uncomfortable, and we understand that. Like if you're out there for any significant length of time, uh, things are not going to end well for you. Right, and this is a place that is at every turn is it feels like it's actively trying to kill you, not just with these wolves, but with the landscape and the terrain and the weather and everything. And so we get this man who has been fleeing from death. You know, the reason he's gone there is because he's trying to get away from this grief and trying to isolate himself and trying, you know, and. He's trying to escape, we ultimately find out, this, this cer- creeping certainty that he has, that there is no God, that there is no heaven, that there is no nothing after that, right? That th- all of the things that, makes, that death makes people wonder about. And because he can't face his fear of death, he just keeps running and running and running and running to the point that he's literally running and trying to get away from the death that's embodied in these wolves in this den, right? He's trying to run away and get outside that hunting perimeter, so the whole, you know, their whole journey in the film becomes this metaphor for what he's been doing, where he's trying to run away from death. And the film ends by basically saying, well, the thing about death is you can't run away from it, right? All of the, all of the effort and all of the striving and all of the things that he was doing to escape from death only brought him right to the middle of it, right? So Steve and I were talking about before class because he's seen it too. And he was saying, like, I thought that was really corny that the one place he ended up was, like, right in the wolf's den. Like, of all the points on the compass, you know, that he could possibly – he chose to walk right into it. And it's like, sure, right? But that's, what, that's where this movie starts to function more as a metaphor and as a story about us than as, like, a survivalist story. Because that's what it, exactly what it's saying. is like basically whatever direction he picked was right into the wolf's den. Because you can't escape from death. You can try and try and try and try all you want, but death is the one inevitable thing. And so then the film asks us to consider what is a good response to that despair. And what it shows us at the end is exactly what you said. It's to embrace the inevitability of death and live whatever life you have left to the fullest. Even when he's
1: alive, he may not have believed in
0: God. Right. So he was to the point where he absolutely was going to lose his mind. Yep. So he's screaming at mm-hmm. him, come help me, mm-hmm. help.
1: Basically, his earthly, he's dead. He's opening up to God, help me, if you are really there, help me, screaming at him. Believes God doesn't move him, but Mm -hmm. he's right in arm's way. So only two things are going to happen. He's either
0: going down or he's going to stand up. Right. He's going to beat the wolf or he's not. Well. But either way, he's won. Right. Because he's let go. Right. So this is the films, this is the, f- yeah, you've, you've captured the films right away. No matter, no matter what happens with this particular fight with him and the wolf, he's going to die. Because there's like 50 other wolves standing around the edge of the den watching this fight. And he's just climbed out of a freezing cold river in the middle of the Arctic. And so like, there, there's no, like there's no scenario in which he lives. Okay, and what's really interesting, again, is that we would all expect... I mean, how, how would you... Okay, someone write the ending for me that would be a good, happy Hollywood ending. He was a yeah, vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not he was a vampire, maybe. That'd be weird. But, yeah, it's actually about vampires and werewolves, and it's a big twist. No. Um, no, but, yeah, we would expect something, like, maybe he beats the wolf, and then right as the other wolves are coming, the hell, you know, SEAL Team 6 parachutes in, and, like, what, like that... Yeah, right? I mean, that's... And and uh, in in literature, that kind of event is called a Deus ex machina. It's a Greek term that means the God from the machine, and it's basically when the plot has to have a good ending, but there's no like organic way for that to happen. So in the Greek dramas, a God would they would literally lower someone in on the stage, and it would be a God, and the God would be like, "Here's a magic thing to help you," and it's like, "Oh, sure, glad I have this now," and like, "Boop, problem solved." And that's how, that's how a lot of stories sort of end up resolving is that there's, you know, uh, some, some thing magically happens that wouldn't normally happen. And so a helicopter, right, or coming around the river and seeing a cabin. Like, and what the film is saying by not giving us that is that the film is saying there is no God. There is no one coming for you. There is no cabin around the bend. There's no helicopter coming in. There's no, you don't have any hope that this is going to end with you living, Death is inevitable and inescapable. You always end up in the wolf's den. That's what the film is saying. Right? There is, there is nothing coming from outside to help you. So all you can do is do the best with what you have. Now, if you think that's depressing, you're right. Okay? But that's that pessimism. Right? That's that we think things are getting better. We think we're getting away from the wolves. But we're not. We're actually, it's actually getting worse. We're actually getting closer to the den. That's that's what that film embodies. That's the that's the message of The Gray, and so pessimists and absurdists and all the nihilists and all of them, their best advice is eat, sleep and be, or eat, drink and be married, because tomorrow we die. Right? There is no larger meaning. There is no larger purpose. You can't escape this ride that we're all on. So you might as well have a good time, and probably you know try not to hurt anyone else while you're doing it because that's, I guess, it's bad. That, do you, do you, I mean, can you understand that message? Can you see? I If you haven't seen the gray, it might be a little bit harder to connect the dots. But,
1: but it's not, in some ways, too. Mm-hmm. You can do everything in your power to fill it with philosophy, you can fill it with whatever the world has to offer, but you are never going to be satisfied because the only satisfaction
0: in real true living is knowing who your mm-hmm. creator is. Exactly. So the the what what Janie's saying is, you know, talking about how there is a that void that is in us is something that's meant to be filled by God. Exactly. What a lot of these philosophers would say is that void is all there is. And you're jumping ahead of me to where we talk about the biblical response. No, it's okay. But, I mean, that's, like, you know, it's important to listen and to see where, where in our po- – again, The Grey came out in movie theaters and had Liam Neeson in it, so a bunch of people went and saw it. And they probably didn't think twice about it. I was, you know, meditating on existential despair and the inevitability of death. Like, you know, but it was. I mean, that was, that was in the film. And so they consumed that message whether they, whether they consciously got that or not, right? So here's what I want you to do. Um, I'm going to give you a, uh, about probably about ten minutes. Um, uh, so we got four groups we got the, the two tables here, two tables in the back back there, two tables back there, two tables up here. I, I, I got a few different passages. I tried to be I tried to be as varied as possible with this and give you a bunch of different examples from a bunch of different places. Um, so what I want you to do is read, I'm going to assign you each a passage, uh, and then I want you to spend a few minutes in your group read it together. And then um, there's some questions there at the top. Uh, first of all, what's the basic message of the passage? So, you know, talk that out amongst yourselves. Two, where do you see that cynicism or that pessimism or that despair at work in this passage? Can you identify it? Can you highlight it? Can you, you know, explain it? Three, how does that message make you feel? Just, just respond emotionally to it. Okay, don't, don't try to correct it yet. Don't try to, to talk around it. Just say, you know, when I hear this message, it makes me feel this way. You know, and use a few adjectives. Try not, to, I mean, sad, though, we're all sad right now, right? Because we've been depressing you guys for an hour so far. So, but, you know, like r- really try to get in there and say, I feel this, I feel this. You know, this is this is kind of how it's making me, you know, this is how I'm reacting to it. And then, have you encountered this message that's in this passage you're going to work on in any other places? In some people that you've talked to, maybe, or in another media or another story that you can think of? Just all we're working on right now is identifying it. Can you Can you find it? Can you identify it? And then can you talk about it? So the first passage is from is from Nietzsche. It's, uh, he's retelling the myth of Pandora. The second one is a quote from Douglas Adams, who is an author. He wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Uh, he was an atheist. And the quote is actually him. It's, it's Richard Dawkins, who's a very prominent atheist thinker today, a writer and stuff like that. And Richard Dawkins was quoting Douglas Adams at Douglas Adams' funeral. Okay, so that's what this quote is from. It's from Douglas Adams' funeral, but it's actually things he said. Um, the next one is from The Goldfinch, which is a, a best-selling novel that just came out in October last year. Uh, it's, it, made, it made tons and tons of best, of 20, best book of 2013 lists. Okay, so it's, it's, it's being considered an excellent, excellent, excellent piece of American fiction. The next one is from the new HBO show True Detective, which just started airing a couple weeks ago and I was, th- you know, I was thinking about this class and I watched the first episode and this conversation happened and I was like, oh, whoa. That has to, we have to talk about that. And then the last one is a song from Kesha who's I'm sure everyone's favorite pop princess but it's a song that she released uh, a couple years ago called Die Young. Okay? So, why don't we have uh, this group here do the hitchhikers, the Douglas Adams stuff. Why don't we have that group back there uh, talk about the goldfinch Uh, How about this group over here, handle the uh, Kesha song, since I know Mike here, you got a musician, so I stacked your deck, and then you guys right here, why don't you do the true detective thing from HBO, okay, so uh, do that in your group, spend a few minutes on it, make some notes about it, and then I'll ask you guys to share what you do with each of the other groups, since they're not all going to read your piece, so take a few minutes, and then we will uh, come back together. Tell us, uh, we'll start over here with Douglas Adams. Tell us, tell us just very briefly kind of the, the main point of that, uh, and then a little bit about how your group responded to it. Um, you you all are taking these handouts with you. You can look through the other ones that you didn't get to on your own uh, and kind of listen to what the group said about them. But uh, go ahead, Douglas Adams, group. Life is
1: fleeting, and after that, there's nothing.
0: Okay. Okay, good. And what did you guys do with that? Anything? Okay. Okay. The
1: character in it didn't realize that there was nothing to it. He thought he was important, and there was everything around was for his benefit. Yeah. It turned out that he was just insignificant.
0: Good. Yeah, and you'll actually hear this a lot from a lot of different atheist thinkers, and they're obviously speaking of directly about creationism, right? Because uh, people who believe that God created the universe believe that humankind, us was part of God's plan from the beginning, and so that the universe was in, in, in some way at least created, I mean, it's mainly created for God himself, but in some ways also created for us. And you have a lot of atheists who say, no, like, this is actually fairly, the, the universe is fairly hostile towards human life, and we're this sort of, like, happy or unhappy, depending on how you look at it, accident, right? And that there is no actual meaning, there's no actual purpose, and nothing was designed for us. So, yeah, you get that really in, in Adam's quote. And, of course, that's why Richard Dawkins was quoting it in the first place. So, good. How about the goldfinch? Anyone want to talk about that? Go
1: ahead, go ahead Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I really had a hard time relating to this. Okay. Why is that? I mean, well, because it's just so, there's so much despair in it. Okay. when you think of life as a cesspool mm-hmm. you know it's like there
0: is no good there is no good at all good so. yeah in the, I mean, in there particularly in that quote right the, the author who's writing says that you know since there is no good you might as well find some, something to latch on to which in that particular book's case is art and the beauty that we find in art which is at least a teeny bit more permanent than human life so yeah there. I
1: did give that inclination of, of it was, it look for something to be grateful
0: for. Yeah, sure, it's right, yeah. It's
1: a privilege to love what death doesn't touch. Yeah. So you have something to be grateful for, but it's just so fleeting. It's just not much, yeah. yeah.
0: Good, okay. How about back there, Kesha? <laughs> 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 well I mean what was what was the basic message of the song you only live once you party like you're going to die or what's like the word saying a hundred times live hard die young yeah because but we're gonna die we're gonna die tomorrow or we're, gonna, we're gonna die we're young we're gonna die young hmm? yep no point so do whatever yeah
1: good
0: okay good, good and how about up here true detective Life has no purpose. Life has no purpose. No hope. No hope. Mm-hmm.
1: I think someone said, Russ needs
0: help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, good. Okay, now, what I want to do, you, you have some examples of this, and I promise you, if you look other places, it's all over the place, right? I want to go through, uh, and we're going to have to do this relatively briefly, but uh, you can spend some more time on these over the next week, but some some. Clear biblical responses to the kinds of attitudes that we've seen tonight. So first of all, um, on doubting and questioning God, I put in here the beginning part of Psalm 22. Um, This is the psalm that Jesus quotes when he is on the cross, and it begins, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me, or forsaken me, if you're into the New King James, right? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. I was struck as I was reading through this psalm today how similar it sounds to the prayer that Otway prayed in the grave, just with fewer F-bombs. Because he's crying out to God and saying, you're supposed to be there, you're supposed to be there, I need your help, and God's not answering. And so out of his anguish, he even gets to the place where he's saying, you know, if you come and save me, I'll tell everyone about you. The same kind of promise that Otway was making, you know, there, right? Now, what's interesting about this is somehow at some point in the church, we got this idea that it's not okay to be angry with God or to be mad at God or to be confused and have questions for God and those kinds of things. And the Psalms directly contradict that. The psalms are filled with people who don't have all the answers, who are filled with questions, and actually are pretty confused about God's involvement in everything. And, and the, the basic attitude of, these psalms are called lament psalms, they're lamenting, right? The basic attitude of the lament psalms is, I know there's a God, I just don't really get it right now. Now, the, the big difference between the way the Bible teaches us to ask these questions, the way the Bible teaches us to express our anger and our frustration and our fear to God The way the Bible teaches us to engage that sort of existential despair when we're afraid that there might not be any meaning, that there might not be any light at the end of the tunnel, is by voicing those things, but voicing them on a foundation of certainty. Okay, so you see in the Psalms, on these lament Psalms over and over and over, lots of questioning, lots of doubting, lots of head scratching, and and deep, deep, deep sort of anguish, but then it comes back to affirmations of basic biblical truths. I know who God is. I know that God will rescue us in the end. I know that God is just. I know that God is love. You know, these kinds of... So, even though I don't understand it right now, I'm going to continue to affirm these things, and it's an affirmation in spite of uh, doubt and disbelief. It's saying, even though I can't see this right now, even though it doesn't make sense to me right now, I'm going to hold on to these things. Well, isn't that our faith? Yes. It's our faith. But again, somewhere along the way, and I can't tell you how many bajillion Christians I've talked to that say this, like we don't think it's okay to have doubts and have questions and to be in those moments where, like what we saw in the gray or in some of these, you know, some of these texts where, where we're just not sure if there is any meaning or hope. And again, that often, often, often happens when we're confronted with death. There's a reason that the scripture calls death the final enemy. Okay, because it it is the great equalizer, it is the great it is great doubt bringer. And when we come face to face with death, particularly when somebody's very close to us, right, it, it often completely rocks us, just completely devastates us and brings us to this this dark place full of doubting and questioning and, and, and really, really actively wondering about the goodness of God, to where we're saying things like, <clears throat> I'm praying to you and you're not there. Where are you? You're supposed to be here. What's going on? Did you drop the ball? Right. And then we're then we get all guilty and we're like, oh, we're not supposed to say those things. But the Psalms actually give us a pattern for how to say these things, a pattern for how to pray these things. Right. By beginning there and then coming back to affirmation. And so, again, when when we're encountering people who are in those places, our response doesn't have to be, well, you're just wrong. Sorry you know we can we can say with them i understand how you're feeling and actually the writers of the scriptures understood how you're feeling too what you're feeling is a basic normal human experience doubt is a very normal human thing everyone goes through it almost everyone right and here are some places in the scriptures where people doubted basically in public for you to see right they they showed you how to how to go about your doubting so but doesn't
1: joke mind
0: of God. So therefore, how can we even question Sure. Well, uh, Why
1: should we even have doubts? Well,
0: because what's we don't know the What's interesting about Job? So here's what's interesting about Job. And I get really scared when I read Job because of this, <laughs> because of this reason. <laughs> so Job Has all these doubts and questions. And when you read the things that Job actually says about God, like, I'm sort of, like, scooting away from the Bible, afraid lightning's going to strike him, you know, in the text. Because, I mean, he's saying things like, you've been unjust to me. You've treated me unfairly. Um, and, And then all of his friends show up, and they do the normal Christian thing, where they're like, Job, you can't say that about God. You know, obviously you've sinned in your life, or this wouldn't be. I mean, they say all the, all, I mean, they invented the church answers, right? And then they became the church name, right? And Job keeps saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, God's wrong, and I'm in the right. I'm the one that's in the right, and if God would show up, he'd vindicate me, okay? Then when God shows up, he first turns, well, he, he does this whole thing with Job, and in and, and the end, Job says, okay, I understand, that, I understand that my questions just don't have good answers, right? That's essentially where we get to with all of that. I mean, fast forward, because we're running short on time. But then he turns to Job's friends. And he says, you have sinned against me by the way you've spoken about me. And you need to have Job offer sacrifices on your behalf so I don't judge you. And they're the ones who are offering all the good church answers that I learned in Bible school. And, and God's the one that's saying, you spoke falsely about me and about Job, and you better pray for your forgiveness real fast. So there's, there's a sense even in Job where the answer isn't you can't ask questions. The answer is just, well, your questions probably don't have very good answers. Right? And, and there's a reason God's God and you're not God. And, and the creature can never be the creator, never understand. The, that's different, at least for me it feels different than you can't ask questions or you shouldn't ask questions. Because, um, again, the people that keep telling Job that he should quit asking questions, God rips pretty hard at the end. So, okay, very briefly, if you want to stick around after this and debrief some of this, we can. But I just want to get most of us out near, near on time. Psalm 8 when we talk about the indifference of because here's here's the, the script that all of these all of these stories we were looking at is talking about again the ancient script was the the world is actively hostile towards you and it's trying to kill you right and life is a struggle life is a con- that was that was that that was that what all those other cultures in the Bible were talking about the script that we're seeing today the script that you saw in all of those, the script that we've been talking about is that the universe is sort of like has this this hostile indifference towards you it's you don't matter. Your life doesn't matter. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. And you're going to die. And, and after you die, no one actually cares. Because, because you as a human, to be human, is to not matter. And so the universe has this sort of like hostile indifference towards you. It's dangerous for you. It's anti-life, but not in sort of some sort of active, combative way. But just because like you're so insignificant and small, right? The way we feel about ants. It's like, who, how many how ants many can you name? None, because they don't matter and they're gross. Right? And that's, that's sort of like the story that's being told about humankind today by a lot of places in our culture. And you saw that cropping up in all of these stories. right? And so here, on, the, on absurdism and on the indifference of the universe, I would offer Psalm 8, um, which says, Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You taught the children and in infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. And then here we get a little taste of that sort of like wondering whether there's any meaning or purpose. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? What are human beings that you should care for them? And he's basically saying like we're basically ants compared to you. Like how could you even care about us? Right? And that there, I mean, there's some, there's some overlap between that, that emotion that sense, that statement, and the script that our world is talking about today. But then he comes back and says, "Yet you made them, which is us humanity, right? Only a little lower than God, and crowned them with glory and honor, and you gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority." And he goes on. So again, like what we would say is where meaning and purpose are derived from is from God and from humankind being created in God's image. Like that—that that is where our meaning comes from. That's where our purpose comes from. And then finally on the inevitability of death, uh, this is why Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. This is why Paul says actually in First 1 Corinthians fifteen is a whole big chapter about the resurrection, and that's why Paul says there if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we are all fools and our faith is stupid. And above all people, we should be pit- we should be pitied. People should look at us and be like those silly Christians. They're so dumb if jesus was not raised from the dead that's that's how these paul saying that's how people should feel about us okay but obviously jesus was raised from the dead and so paul here says our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of god these dying bodies acknowledging the reality of death the inescapability of death right our dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret we will not all die but we will all be transformed For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death (coughs) is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then, of course, like we talked about Revelation 21 last week, right? But we have this, this image of the sea that has haunted the, the world of the Bible all the way through, right? This looming, fearsome image of death and of hostility towards life. So today we would maybe talk about it like the Arctic, or we would talk about it like outer space. Or we have some of this, you know, this, this cold indifference towards life. This, this symbol of how little the universe cares for us, right? And in Revelation twenty one, when we see the new heaven and the new earth, there is no more sea that that source of evil and chaos and hostility towards life is gone, and all that is left is a is an affirmation that life is good and is beautiful and is what God intended all along. And so again, we would say, you know, there's no, I don't know, there's no snow, there's no ar- there's no polar vortex, right? <laughs> and, I know right? everyone rejoiced. Yes. <laughs> so. Here's what I want you to do for homework this week. Um, I, for, I listed all the works cited for you. I gave you some websites and stuff. But choose a piece of media from the list there. I gave you. I tried to come up with a bunch of other things. A bunch of them are films that are out. I gave you a blog post that's a really, really good piece about clinical depression um, that, a, that a blogger that I really like wrote. Uh, there's several songs. I marked the ones that are explicit. Um, so just choose one of them. And again, if you don't have a lot of time, the songs are like three minutes long. Uh, but go through some of those questions. Again, just practice identifying these messages. See, I mean, really practice looking for them and identifying them in media. If you want to choose something that's not on here, if we were working through this on a song or a TV show or a movie that you've seen, kind of popped up, that's fine. Use, use anything. But can you, can you identify this message somewhere else and then imagine that you're in a conversation with someone who really resonates with the worldview of that song? You know, they're like, you know, I, this sounds weird, but Kesha just gets me, you know? Like, if, imagine that you're in a conversation with someone like that. I know, that's a little bit silly, right? But a lot of people feel that way. Imagine that you're in a conversation with someone like that. How would you respond to them? What would you say to them? How would you engage them in a loving and respectful way, but in a way that's, that's, that's speaking truth to them? You know, so so kind of go through that mental exercise, or if you know someone in your life that's like that, go ahead and have a real conversation with them, right? But do that for next week. I want to I want to hear what you guys come up with. Really excited about that. Um, we are way past time, so uh, I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us. And then again, if you want to stick around and chat, I got nowhere to go, so um, I'm happy to. I know we went through a lot of stuff really fast tonight, but um, this is why we didn't try to do it all in one week. So let was pretty good. God, it's really easy to get uh, discouraged and depressed when you look at uh, the the messages that, that are in our culture. The, these these despair, uh, and I think as as someone said tonight, they're they're just kind of icky. They're really are uh, things that that we sort of rebel against naturally when we come in contact with them. But help us help us to see that these are messages that people that we love are absorbing. Help us to see that these are messages that are resonating with people that we deeply care about and that ultimately you deeply care about. And help us as we read the scriptures and we, we find the hope that you wrote in there so long ago that is still relevant and speaking to us today. Help us to be able to be bridge builders for those people in our lives. That we can connect the beauty and the truth and the power of your holy scriptures to the, the, the rotten messages that they're receiving today, that, that that are filling them today. And ultimately, may we become for them a light that they could see and hope and love and know that they are seen and loved by you. Uh, ultimately, we want to engage these, these stories and these movies and these songs not because they have any sort of... Um, you know, value for us necessarily, but because people we love care about them and, and, and we love those people and we want to be able to speak truth to them and we want to be able to explain and show who you are in a way that, that they can understand. So help us to be good, faithful pictures of you. Help us to incarnate your love to the people who are in our lives and may everything that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, uh, Give us a good foundation for doing that. Uh, We love you a lot. We're so grateful for the opportunity that we've had to gather. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. All right, thanks, everyone. We will see you all next week.